Thank you, Paul. Those passages seem very incongruent, not together, but we will tie them together this morning. They do relate together. So let's, let's pray first. Father, as, uh, as the psalmist prays, we, we are in the presence of, uh, of your, you're in your presence. And uh, as the psalmist said, how refreshing it is that we have made God our home. You have been the hope and joy for so many generations that have called out to you and you have responded when people are seeking you. From the Old Testament to the New, you're there. You provide a clear vision of truth. And Father, we have that pure vision in the Son that you sent here, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Messiah. Father, I ask that you give us greater faith in your power to change things, to turn things around. We ask that you give us more confidence in your love, that we have the grace to walk in your trust when days are dark. And we recognize that, that there is so much truth in you and there's so much reality, but many of it is obscured, and so we just believe it because we cannot see everything. And so, Father, even when the future seems cloudy to us, we rejoice, even if it's just one step in front of us that's, that's plain and that's clear. Father, we hold fast to your commands. We hold fast to your word. And when confusion steps in, and we want to stand firm on what we know, and that is your grace and your mercy for us. And Father, we ask that what we lack in faith, that you help us to make it up in loving one another. We are thankful that Jesus is the light in a very dark world, and that we have a responsibility to shine that light in a dark world, in, in the lives of, and hearts of people that are dark, and, and that are confused, and that are depressed, and that are, are lost without a way out. But you somehow gave us a glimpse of that mystery. And so, Father, we want to look to see you in how you are working around us the one true Holy One of God who is sent for sinners. Father, we have fallen short. We know what Romans says, that everyone has sinned and we fall short of your glorious standard. But yet we also know what Romans says about your grace and that you freely make us right in your sight. So, Father, we're going to take a few minutes and we'd ask that you remind us today, right now, of the ways that we may have sinned in the past week in thought or in, in word or deed or just neglect. And so, Father, we take this moment, just a, just a few seconds, to confess those things before you now. God of grace, thank you that um, when we were lost, you found us. When we were ashamed, you forgave us. And you have nailed all those accusations from the accuser himself on the cross. We receive your forgiveness now. And we recognize that we are in the very presence of God. And how refreshing it is that we have made you our home. And it's through Jesus Christ we pray, amen. I think I might have uh, shared this story with you before, but uh, in 1981, the summer of 1981, I was in Haiti for a missionary internship uh, when a hurricane hit. 
I'm going to lower this down. It wasn't a, um, a physical hurricane, and it wasn't Haiti that was hit. It was my home church back in Dallas, Texas, uh, the church that I was ordained out of. And uh, we knew that the storm, we saw the storm winds rising and the winds uh, you know, heating up and the waves crashing, and we saw it, but we kept hoping that uh, it would all be resolved soon. There was a, a big division in the church, and uh, we still call that, we still refer to that back in 1981, we still refer to it as Black Sunday, uh, the people that were part of that, that church. And basically it was a Sunday when there was uh, lots of, it just, in the, it just erupted one Sunday morning, and it erupted and the divisions became irreparable, and, and the church split right down the middle. And, and what it was, I'm not going to go all the details of how we got there, but basically we had two lead pastors, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, but it did not turn out to be so good. Uh, both men were very strong personalities, and pretty soon the congregation began to align themselves with one or the other. And even the elder board began to divide and align themselves with one of those two men. And uh, it was like Corinth all over again, the church in Corinth. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, in 1 Corinthians, you know, you had some, Paul said that some were going, I'm of Apollos, and others were going, I'm of Paul. And then the real self-righteous ones, well, we're of Jesus Christ, you know. Well, that's how it was. It was if it was, I'm of Barry and I'm of Gene. And that's exactly what happened in the church split. And there was one group that went to the north uh, in the uh, Dallas suburb of Plano. And then there was a group that stayed behind in the old building. And uh, it was devastating for the members. It was devastating for so many of us because a lot of people came to Christ in that place. Uh, people were baptized in that church. Some couples were married in that church. Um, the people we respected and, and, and admired just kind of let us down a little bit. And we were kind of at a loss. And it was, it was seriously devastating to a lot of people. I had, was in, I had some of the richest times I had was in the small group uh, with, under the elder, uh, my elder Rick Nutter, who was a very gentle, wise, soft-spoken man who was kind of a glue to sort of try to look for peace and among that group. And then he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it just seemed like all the winds were going against us, and uh, the, the church split. Uh, the one in the north, they kind of recognized this. They kind of came face to face with the, the, the mistakes and the sins that they had committed and, and the pastor there. And the other group never really did. And, and then there was a couple of serious scandals after that, and pretty much about five or six years ago, I think they finally shut the doors. Um, there's a remnant that I that is still meeting together, I think, and they're trying to they've rechanged the name and they're trying to figure out what what God would like them to do. But basically, you know, it, basically it just died. It's a church that just yeah just went away, and um, <clears throat> it's sad and it's devastating for the people who saw it, who participated in it. It's uh, it's it it can destroy your faith in the church. It can destroy your faith in God. And some people did walk away from the gospel and walk away from the from the, the Lord in those times. And so it was really very very devastating and very hard. Um, but the Bible tells us that if and Jesus says that, that if there's just two or three together, His Spirit is there. And we've talked about the Spirit being, and we'll be talking more about discerning the Spirit in individuals later on, but we know that the Spirit in, in, inhabits us individually. But there's something different here when Jesus talks about two or three gathered together, that the Spirit inhabits a community. 
And that is important, that there's be this, this communal sense of the leading of the Spirit. And when two or three are gathered, it's, it's different than just the individual. It is, a, it is the Spirit here in a different way. It's not just individuals. So we want to look at, what I want to look at this morning is two different groups and how the Spirit works in a community. And these two groups are in Dallas, Texas. They are in the Scriptures, and we just heard about them when Paul read about them. Uh, two very, very different and we're dealing with the Spirit of God in this series. The, the, the Hebrew word is ruach. It's this, it can be translated as wind or breath or spirit. Uh, or it's, it's the wind that lifts up the bird's wings and all that. It's just it's something. But this, is, this spirit here that I'm talking about, what we're talking about in the church and the community, it is a life-giving spirit. So life-giving that it can bring back from the dead. But it is not only just a life-giving spirit, it is a life-participating spirit in that for a community that is in tune with the Spirit and wants to receive the fullness of the Spirit, we participate in what the Spirit of God is doing. So not only is it, is it life-giving, but it's two creative works. It can actually bring back from the dead, but it also invigorates a vibrant church. It can, it can bring back the, from the dead a, a devastated community, and it can bring back a participation of a vibrant community. And we see these two contrasted. These two communities we're going to look at are separated by 500 years and hundreds of miles, but it's the same spirit at work. It is the same spirit that is doing this. And so we first see Ezekiel, Paul read Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, this famous story where uh, there is a, Ezekiel is, is having, has a vision. Uh, Israel, Judah has, has, um, is in captivity, in the Babylonian captivity. They have been cut off. They have been destroyed. It is a really sad story for what happened. Uh, God kept telling them over and over and over again, you get yourself into this mess, you can get out of it. You can come back to me, return to me, and you can get out of it. Until finally, at the end of the book of Jeremiah, it's finally Jeremiah just saying, it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to really, really be a, really a mess. And he wrote also the book of Lamentations, and uh, Jeremiah did. And he writes it like this, that when all this happened, I think I put it on screen here. So we got two communities. Sorry, we went by, by that. I forgot I even had a clicker here. Um, in Lamentations 3.16, he says, God has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he made me cower in the ashes. That's how it felt like to him. Can you imagine grinding on gravel? One of their poets wrote, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps. No more worship, no more joy, no more praise. That's the condition they were in. They could have listened to Jeremiah, but they didn't, and they were cut off. And I was looking over this again this week, the Jeremiah story, and how he tried to warn them. And what did they do? How did they respond to Jeremiah? They threw him in a pit. And they said, you're too critical, you're ruining everything, we don't need the criticism, we, you're discouraging the people, stay away from that. In fact, we're just going to throw you in the pit. And I'm sorry, but I made this connection in the last couple of weeks with the report that came out from the Southern Baptist Convention and the abuse that went on in that denomination and the, and the cover-up and all this stuff. They had all these people coming and warning them and telling them about people being hurt, and they ignored it. They covered it up. And one of their lawyers, trying not to, not to um, 
cause uh, any, any ruckus or anything. He said, he, he told him to, to not pay any attention to it. But that wasn't legal advice. What he said was, this is a scheme of Satan to distract us from the work of saving souls. He rationalized it. Now, I'm not picking on the Southern Baptists. It's just that they're the largest denomination in America, the largest, largest Protestant denomination. So you've got the Catholic Church and the, and the Southern Baptists. So we know that if it's happening in their churches, it's happening everywhere. So I'm not picking on them. It's just that it's happening everywhere. And my point is this, is that Jeremiah comes along and says, this is the problem, this is the problem, change. And they're going, no, we've built this. This thing is too big. We've built, this, we've built the temple, we've built the city, Zion, it's just too big, and our work is too important to allow you to keep going on like this, so they threw them in the pit. And I feel like sometimes we do that here, not necessarily in Shepherd of the Valley, but I think in, in this, the church as a whole, that people are saying, pay attention to this, pay attention to this, and we're going, no, our work's too important. And so we ignore it. We kind of cover it up. We don't want to... We don't want to stain it. And really, the people who are bringing this to us have our best interests at heart. Jeremiah had the best interests of Israel in his heart if they would just listen. And we see that they're cut off. Now, <clears throat> they've been separated from the, the Ruach of God. But Ezekiel rediscovers hope in this chapter. He rediscovers the power of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit picks him up, and he drops him in a valley. I'm assuming this is all a vision. I don't think this is actual real. I'm assuming this is a vision. But he picks Ezekiel up and sets him into a, a, a valley with all these dried, sun-bleached bones everywhere. And he's a priest. So we see in chapter 1 he's a priest. So he shouldn't be touching these dead bones because then he's, now he's unclean. But this was not a time for religious protocol. This was not a time for a bunch of purity rules. Ezekiel is down in the midst of that in all these dried bones that represent the death of this community. And God tells him, gives him this other vision. This is what you need to do. You need to prophesy. You need to speak my word. And he says, speak my word. Prophesy that the that they would, bones will be covered with the sinews, the, the tendons and the ligaments, and then the flesh. And finally, ultimately, the spirit of, the, the spirit of God. And this is what exactly what happens now some of us has been in some of these devastated communities i just showed shared you my story probably many of you have been part of some of these devastated communities and it's very very painful and you think it's dead and there's no hope for it well god takes ezekiel and runs him through this process and he doesn't come down in just one fell swoop and say they're alive you know come back he doesn't even breathe into their nostrils like he did with Adam. It's this kind of this long process, this transition. He, he says he gives it, promises them this, the, the, the bones are there, and then he promises that they'll be covered with the, with the sinews and the, and the flesh and, the, and then finally the breath. And then uh, they, what happens is they start to kind of come together and cling and start rattling together and making all kinds of ruckus and all kinds of noise. And then little by little, there's the... The ligaments and the tendons appear, and then the flesh appears, and they start to stand up, and he promises the breath, but no breath. And then he comes back to Ezekiel and says, okay, now promise the breath, prophesy the breath, and pretty soon the winds come from the east, from all the four corners of the earth, and, in, and in infuses those bones, and they do come back to life. 
I think it's important that we notice that this is a process, that this is a transition. Yes, God could have snapped his fingers and they would have come back to life. But I think this whole thing is a symbolic act of God, that this is going to be a long process. That this is a transition, and the transitions, but how the Spirit is working can be very long. And in this case, we know it was long. We know it was like 500 years long. Because they continue to do this, and you can see that the history of Israel sort of actually do this. They start to kind of get back together. They get back in the promised land. And then finally it comes to fruition with the birth of the Messiah. It comes to fruition with the birth of Jesus and the, the cross and the resurrection. And that's how these things will happen. But this took a long, long time. And I think even when we're in communities where, they're, where maybe they were dead, and, and I talk about my church there, this was, what, 40 years ago? Sometimes it just takes a long, long time to do that. And the other point I want to make is that sometimes it's very painful. Sometimes this transition is not only long, but it is also painful and is not comfortable and it hurts. And so you get this picture of the bones clanging together, rattling together. And that's kind of my, my thinking that sometimes in these transitions, we're just kind of rattling together and making noise and clanging together. And it's very, very painful. I heard that to bring a, a child with acute starvation is very, very difficult. I heard this from World Vision. And they say that when the relief workers come in there and they find children that are in acute states of starvation, they, they recover them, if, hopefully if they can recover, by putting just uh, uh, sugar water on their lips because they can't eat. They don't even feel anything. They don't feel pain anymore. They're not, they're not even hungry. They're not ravenous. That's what I've been told. And so they, put, they start with just the, the, a little bit of sugar water and, sure, and soon... They, they start to feel things again, and they start to feel pain, and they start to bellow and wail, and then finally they come to a point where they're begging for water and food. Those are the lucky ones. Those are the fortunate ones. But that process is painful. And I think when, they, when the Spirit comes to restore these dead bones, wherever they may be, that that process can be really painful. It can be long, and it can be painful. It can hurt. But it can be done. What's left of this, this dry bones of community is just physical exhaustion. They've lost their ability to hope. They've lost their capacity to believe. And little by little, the prophecy comes together and they regain that. They regain that capacity to hope. They regain that ability to believe and faith. And they begin to come back to life. But it's long and it's painful. But my point in all this is never, never resign ourselves to the belief that a deadened, devastated community is beyond reach of the Holy Spirit. We are never beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can resurrect a community that is hurting. Even if they are exhausted, even if they have lost their ability to believe, even if they've lost their capacity to hope, the Spirit can still touch it. They can still revive the dead bones. So one thing that the Spirit can do is that it just brings a breath of life to dead bones. But it can also bring this mobilizing power to an already vibrant church. This creative life, this creative spirit, not only brings back from the dead, it also mobilizes, invigorates an already vibrant community. And that's what I want us to be. I want us to be that vibrant community that we talked, that, that Paul read about in Acts 
in, in Acts chapter 13. That's the, <clears throat> as we turn to that, it's just five short verses, but Antioch is a, is a very important church. It's the place where they first taught, called these people Christians. And uh, it's really interesting. If you look at this passage as well as the passage in, in Acts 11, and then you go over, you flip over a couple more chapters, I think it's 23, we Acts, uh, Antioch gets in the picture again. And I just want to mention a few things that I see here in the church of Antioch that we can emulate, that I believe that if we want to be a vibrant church that has an enlarged vision, an enlarged mission, that we want to, we want to receive all that the Holy Spirit has for us, I think it's worthwhile to emulate the vibrant community of Antioch. First of all, there's a love for learning. And I believe the learning and the spirit work together. And when we see this, when they see first, first see Antioch come on the picture in chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas are there, and the only verb used to describe what they're doing is teaching. They teach. And you get the idea that this community has this voracious appetite for learning for learning, what's, now, learning what God is going to do. So what are they learning here? What is it, what is it that Paul and Barnabas are teaching? Probably they're, pre, they're teaching that whole tapestry of the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament wasn't written yet. Uh, so they're talking about the Old Testament, this whole picture of how this culminates in Jesus the Messiah. And not only that, that this was a mission that God had for Israel. And now the Jesus' disciples, the people, the, the apprentices of Jesus, they are to carry on that mission. They're not just sitting back and going, hey, isn't life wonderful? They've got, a, they've got a job to do. And that's what I think that this probably is teaching, this whole tapestry, this whole sweeping movement of God and the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament till it culminates in Jesus Christ. And these are the people who are in that line of fulfilling the mission. That's what I think they're teaching. They're probably also teaching words and the oral tradition of Jesus' teaching. Uh, the oldest book we have is James. That's probably the earliest New Testament book we have. And if you look at that book, it's pretty much a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So I suspect that they are also probably teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And I just think those two things go together. A love for learning and the work of the Spirit are together. We see what God's doing. We hear what God's doing. We hear what God is like. We hear what Jesus is like. And the Holy Spirit creates an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to work. The second, second item I see here is an attentive eye and an ear for prophecy. That they are able to see what God is doing. They're able to see where he is working. They're always mentioned together, the prophets and the teachers, they kind of work in tandem. And I'm not really sure how that works together. I'm just kind of guessing here. But I see this as more as the teachers who are telling about God's great works, about who he is and what he's done. And I see the prophetic word more of concrete action. When we look at Agabus twice in, the, in Antioch, he seems to bring the teaching down to the concrete level. And everything he says is true. Uh, it's, it's not like he reaches this hypnotic state. Agabus is purely lucid. You know, he's not in some hypnotic state or anything. It's a purely lucid comments and teaching and, and, and promoting and provoking to action. And I think that's what's going on here, that you have a teaching and you have a prophet, and so you have the teaching and the action going together. I don't know. You know, I mean, there's lots of, lots of ways we can interpret this, the, the prophecy, but I just see those two working together. But whatever it is, they are sensitive and receptive to the word of God. And at this point, it is coming out of the mouth of a prophet, specifically Agabus, who they don't even met till then. 
but they received the word of God and teaching and prophecy, and they began to act. They had the right practices. Twice, fasting is mentioned in this paragraph. It is worship and fasting, and then it is prayer and fasting. And so they are worshiping and fasting, and they get from the Holy Spirit, they get from maybe one of the prophets there, that they need to send Paul and Barnabas on a mission. That's all they got. Where? When? How long are they going to be gone? Where are they supposed to go to? They don't know. Just that they're supposed to send them. So what do they do? They go back to prayer and fasting. And they pray. They pray, and they end up taking them and sending them on a port to take a boat to Cyprus where there's already a Jewish community there where they can set up shop. I don't know if they got that word directly during the prayers or if they just used common sense. I kind of think it's probably just common sense that they prayed and they fasted and they said, this makes the most sense to us. We should send them to Cyprus because we just have to go seven miles west to a port city. They can hop a boat and they're there. I think that makes good sense. So they practice the right practices. And most of you know that I am big on spiritual disciplines here. And spiritual disciplines are not so that you have an experience while you're fasting. It's a training. It's a training so that you respond re reflexes. Fasting teaches us that we don't always get what we want when we want it. And we practice that, and then when the time comes, we're able to make those wise, discerning decisions. Uh, Joe Lewis said that, that uh, remember, some of you may remember Joe Lewis, he was a boxer, and he said that... Um, he said, when you get into the ring, it's all your reflexes. He says, if you cheated on your morning runs, it'll show up under the lights in a ring. And that's what this is for. They're doing the right practices, and they're able to respond in a right way because they have developed that relationship with God, and they've listened, and they hear the Holy Spirit. They know what the Holy Spirit sounds like. Extreme generosity. They just give. They just give, and they give out of abundance, not out of a mentality of scarcity. They don't look at it and they go, okay, there's no record here. Okay, um, Paul, uh, can you give us a budget here? How much are you going to need? You know, how, many, how many silver coins are you going to need? And we can maybe see if we can raise that for you. They just gave out of the abundance, and there was plenty. Extreme generosity. They gave out of a mentality of abundance, not of scarcity. And finally, there is a diverse leadership. I don't know if you caught those names that, that, uh, that Paul just read. There's Simeon, who was called the Black One. There's Lucius from Cyrene, probably the coastal, maybe a coastal town in the northern part of Af Africa. Manian, who was brought up with one of the Tetrarchs, uh, Herod Antipas, who was a childhood friend of his, probably very, very wealthy at one time. Uh, there was Barnabas there, who didn't have anything left because he sold everything and gave it away already. And then there was Paul, or Saul at this point still, who, uh, who was this trained Pharisee from a coastal town of Tarsus. So you had this complete diverse leadership, which I think is really important. And here we'd think in America we would have that more, but we do kind of stay within our own echo chambers. But I think this diverse leadership opened them up to the mission. It, it, it gave them a perspective, a more, even in the primitive world, a global perspective because they were so diverse and had so many different points of view, had so many different viewpoints and, and, uh, and strategies, 
and, and ethnicities and economic strata where they were able to discern their mission. And finally, they were a source of grace. You put all these things together, and they are a source of grace. They pull it all together, and you see in, um, in 1123, in, uh, when Barnabas is rise there, he says, when he arrived at Antioch, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And then when Paul and Barnabas came back, they go back to say, we came back to the place where we were given over to the grace of God. And I just think that is so beautiful that all this stuff, the generosity was not obligatory. The, the laying on the hands was not just a formality. Prayer was not superficial. Worship was not just a ceremony. Fasting was not compulsory. This was all about the grace of God and they became a conduit for the grace of God. All this together. This is what a vibrant community looks like. Beautiful, beautiful picture in just five verses. Then you kind of fill in some of the other gaps. But it's a community I want to be a part of. That's, that's something that's pretty exciting to me. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. We were meant to live in community. We were meant to be a part of community. We were meant to discern the spirit as, as a community. This um, not in isolation, uh, it seems like today in our culture, this individual autonomy has become the highest good. That's higher than anything else. But that's not what the New Testament says. It's, not a, it's more of an us-we thing than it is a I-me thing. It's an us-we. And both these places, both communities have a price to pay. Yeah, it was painful for the bones. It was painful. But it's even costly for the vibrant church, too. It's not easy doing this. It's not easy being hospitable. It's not easy bringing other people into our circle of, of fellowship. It's not easy bringing, bringing people around the table. It's not easy living a sacrificial love. Even for people we deeply love, like our family, that is, that's costly. But then we're called to sacrifice, you live a sacrificial love for our, our co-workers, our, our families, our neighborhoods, even the world. We are called to do that. So it does cost. It's not easy. But it's worth it. It's a lot of work. But it meets needs. Every place that Jesus went, he was either met with guarded hostility or he was met with just this gracious hospitality. Everywhere he met, went. And the people that met him with gracious hospitality in places like Antioch, there was just one thing that they focused on. One thing. It wasn't the style of music. It wasn't that it was raucous or that it was quiet. It was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised. They leaned in. Their hearts leaned in to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was their focus. One thing was their focus. They didn't try to hit some demographic of 20-somethings or millennials or urban dwellers or, or rural farm workers or whatever. They, they didn't try to reach one demographic. It was just focusing on God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and His power and His presence among us. And the rest kind of took care of itself. That's where they focused. The Spirit resurrected the dead community to new life. 
It empowered the vibrant community to enlarge their vision and mission. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit. The early church focused on one thing. The worship, the fasting, the prayers that we did together is all focused on one thing. And it is the presence of the triune God in our midst. And everything else falls into place. This, this rogue, this rogue breath of life, this empowerment of life that can take tri bones and make it alive, can enlarge a vision of a church. It's all, still, it's all creation. It's, it bridges that gap between the creator and the creature, from the master to the work, from the actor to the act. It's, it's that Holy Spirit that does it all, that does it all with us and empowers us, gives life to the lifeless. And for the, life, the vibrant church, we share that life. But it's all creative life. It enlarges our vision, or if we're dead, it brings us back to life. Both are works of creation. Both require the same kind of response. And that response is simply this, that the Spirit of Christ enters the open arms of the ones who long to receive what he has to offer. If we long to receive what the Spirit has to offer, he will be there. That's how we respond. He will come to the open arms of the ones who long for what the Spirit has to offer. And this is my prayer for us, that we have open arms to receive whatever the Spirit has to offer. It's going to be work. It may even be scary. But he promises to do that. He promises to be with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these examples. We find um, the dry bones heartbreaking, but at the same time in, in invigorating when they come to life. And we thank you for this body here, that you help us to be open to what the Holy Spirit has for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.